Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hey, nerds. This is Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and we're joined by Peter Sagal, who's to blame for this entire thing. It's his fault. It is my fault and my doing. I'm rubbing my hands evilly. <laughs> we you know, ass- in front of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's actually some pretty good sound there. Yeah. So we assume you're here because you've watched the season five premiere of Game of Thrones, as have we. And listener, if you haven't watched season five, episode one of Game of Thrones, get out of here because we are going to spoil it terribly for you. We're going to hammer it like tenderizing a steak. It'll be be absolutely unrecognizable by the time we're done with it. We've got lots of thoughts, so let's get right to it. But before we dive into the Seven Kingdoms, we want to let our Chicago listeners know there's still a few tickets available to come see Nerdette Live at the Cards Against Humanity headquarters on April 21st. Some of our favorite comedians and storytellers will perform, we'll do live interviews and play some games. Come play with us. Oh, and you get a free beer. That's worth mentioning. Don't you guys want to see what Cards Against Humanity's workspace looks like? I mean, do they work? What happens there? I'll give you a hint. There's a room full of Legos. Come hang out with us. You can get tickets at nerdatpodcast.com slash events. I do want to continue our conversation from last week about our least favorite parts of the series as a whole, but first, I think we need to hash out what happened in episode one of season five. For those of you nerds out there taking notes, this episode was called The Wars to Come. Greta, I think we might need to make you post a photo of your handwritten, diligently taken (laughs) notes that you took while watching this episode. You know, I took notes and I got to say it was actually way more fun to watch Game of Thrones while taking notes than while doing dishes or cooking. I got to say, I recommend the note taking, (laughs) you know, if you're feeling like it. It keeps you focused. I did the same thing. It really does. You know, some time cues for quotes, but also just like there. I have a lot of like, uh, Stannis in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) I like Stannis. Really? I will tell you, on my notes, I'm looking at my pad, it says various things. It says unsullied, it says check-ins, and it says three naked male butts. <laughs> because Good. perhaps, and I, one of the things I'm fascinated with is what you guys said in our preview episode, is that the, the, the boobage of the show is as exciting to you, healthy young women, as it is to the healthy young adolescent-minded men of whom I'm more familiar. I just want to say, this may be the first episode of Game of Thrones ever that has more butt cheeks, male butt cheeks, than female boobs. I did think that it would be fun for us to keep a total tally as the season goes forward. So just number of boobs boobs and number of butts. And then we had a debate about if one boob counts, can there be odd numbers, or were you just calling them boobs in general? Yeah, I was kind of thinking nipples. 
Well, I think, well, you could do it that way. But because we're talking about organisms with bilateral symmetry, mm, mm. boobs come in pairs, butt cheeks come in pairs. So you either have to do boobs and butt cheeks or let's call them racks and butts. Ooh, I like racks and butts. That's Racks and butts. So yeah. let's say racks and butts. So, so we'll so just this keep a tally one, somewhere. <laughs> I think this was two racks, three butts. And there was, I thought, in that scene in Daenerys' bedchamber, the greatest sort of dodge out of a potential full frontal scene of a guy since <laughs> Austin Powers, gold member. The way he just turned toward the camera and, oh, there's a table. Very strategically very placed tables and sheets always on this show for full frontal nudity. But yeah, everything else is fair game. And it only took about 15 minutes to get the first nakedness, which is about the same amount of time it takes to get to the first gory details. And I think it's interesting that the show treats them both as sort of a nugget that they don't put right in the beginning. They kind of tease you with the sort of HBO style grotesqueness of the violence. And then there's just sort of, like we were saying before, superfluous nudity. Yeah, it's superfluous sure. to I, the plot most of the time. I think it's funny that you say it only took 15 minutes because I was like, man, it took 15 whole minutes. Like, I, <laughs> I kind of feel like we should be counting minutes to boobs also yes. as one of our metrics. And like 15 for a premiere of Game of Thrones season? Like, who do we know at 538 who can start crunching these numbers for us? I oh, know. This is good. This Nate is Silver, good. save us all. <laughs> it's, it was almost as if they were teasing by showing us people who weren't naked for like 10 whole minutes. I mean, did, were we even watching Game of Thrones? So, Peter, how long did it take you to actually figure out what that opening scene was all about? It it took me a while, and I'm a little embarrassed because it is actually a scene that was extracted, reshaped, and represented from the fourth book, which is also something I want to talk about today, which is the problem of the fourth book, but we'll get to that. In the fourth book, uh, Cersei, in one of her point-of-view chapters, remembers this incident from her youth, and I think that the writers did a very, very fine job of saying, okay, we're going to take that, we're going to pull that out of that first-person memory, we're going to create a dramatic scene. We're going to confuse the viewers because they don't know who this is. Although when that young girl, who it turns out is Cersei, we don't know that yet, says, you don't need to be afraid of my father. I'm like, don't you know what show you're in? This is Game (laughs) of Thrones. You always have to be afraid of their father. And then I I figured it out. And I thought that that was a really good way to uh, start both the uh, episode, i.e., you know, since we're all coming back to it after a year, however long it's been, there's a moment of disorientation. Who are these people? And eventually uh, you figured out who it was. And for me, it was probably the moment when she said, no, you won't marry a prince, you'll marry a king. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, I remember this. When did you guys figure it out? It was right around then, too. It was when she actually sort of started to predict the future. And then I noticed those braids. And I was like, oh, I see what's happening here. (laughs) That's so interesting. I'm reacting to plot. You're reacting to hairstyle. Here we are. (laughs) And did not that actress whose name I didn't bother to look up do a great job? Of doing an adolescent bitch Cersei. Oh, beautifully done. When you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, that's her. Beautifully done, yeah. I mean, Lannister, from the start, I was clear on. But then knowing that it was a flashback did take a couple minutes for me. I liked it too because it humanized her in a way that we're never going to see probably in the show. I mean, she was tough as nails, clearly even as a child. But it does make you realize that when you lose your father, you lose your father. And it does put you back into feeling like a bit of a child when you lose a parent. And so I think it was interesting to be able to use the movement through time to show her at a more vulnerable state because we're not going to see her break down at the funeral or even in front of Jamie. We're only going to see that in her past. Right. Right. She sort of has that tendency to do angry more than sad. Yeah. Is that a Lannister trait, you think? They're a family that that, uh, presents through anger. Let's just say that. This is part of the fourth book problem, and let me explain what I mean, that for fans of the books, and this goes back to before the TV show came, 
the fourth book is really problematic. There's a long and interesting article in The New Yorker about this very thing, which is that the first three books of the series, uh, A Game of Thrones, Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, are fantastically great and dramatically exciting and just thrilling. And then you get to the fourth book, A Feast for Crows, and people were very disappointed in it. There were fans that went from being, you know, absolutely enthusiastic, huge fans of George R. R. Martin and his writing to absolutely abject haters of him because they found this book so problematic. There are a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is, is that it focuses so much on Cersei. I'm a Lannister, queen for 19 years, daughter of the most powerful man alive. But I could not save my son. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? We can avenge them. Yes, we can avenge them. In prior books, especially with Jamie Lannister, you take a character who you've known and gotten to know, and he's awful and he's terrible and we hate him, and then you start experiencing things from his perspective. And just like you guys talked about in our preview episode, oh, wow, you're like, Jamie Lannister, not so bad. Weird. Amazing, wonderful narrative twist where all of a sudden you have sympathy for somebody who you didn't like. Doesn't work that way with Cersei. <laughs> uh, in the fourth book, and again, this is probably going to play out in this season in part, you spend more time with Cersei, you get inside her mind. She has what are the readers call POV chapters, i.e. you've experienced things from her perspective. And this opening scene was from one of those chapters. And what do you know? She's still awful. <laughs> and it's going to be a real challenge, I think, for the writers and producers and for the actress to play this character. She's going to, if they follow the plot of the fourth book, she's going to be coming into her own as a central character. We're going to be spending a lot of time with her. And for her not to be an awful human being, someone even by Game of Thrones standards, an awful human being who we just recoil from. Because a lot of people did recoil from her in the book. Why would I want to spend this much time with such a hateful person? So it's going to be tough. And, uh, and I'm very interested in seeing how that plays out over the next uh, nine episodes. Well, and in general, how it played out, at least in this episode, was we didn't see a whole lot of Cersei. I mean, it really was just that first scene where she's sort of setting up that she hates Tyrion with all of her soul. And then we move on, right? She's not that happy with Jamie either. She's not happy with Jamie. The line, at least he killed our father on purpose, was so cutthroat. Oh, it was great. And so good. I think she played that moment beautifully. And we do see her starting to have an interaction with the cousin who's now a part of the High Sparrow cultish new religion thing that we're going to see her yes. fighting against. So we're setting up the power struggle between her and King's Landing and the High Sparrow in this episode, too. But just a taste of that, and then we're moving on. In the yeah, and I believe episode. the High Sparrow is going to be played by Jonathan Price, which I'm very excited about. Oh, that's going to awesome. be good. I think in general, if I had to come up with a theme for this episode, I'm curious what you're going to think of this, Peter. I feel like it was people in power getting pep talks from people who aren't in power. <laughs> I feel like that <laughs> well, there's a little a bit of that. I mean, to me, the theme of the episode was more broad and obvious, which is, where are we now? Well, you know? uh, okay, sure. And, and and maybe I'm just a cynic, but I, I always, and you will find this coming from me a lot, which is I'm always putting myself in the place of the producers and the writers and saying, what do we do? Well, obviously, for the first episode of season five, we need to establish where everybody is after the cataclysmic episodes that ended season four. So let's check in with everybody. Where is everybody? What are they doing? What's their status? What's the challenges that they're dealing with? So we know that Tyrion has now been shipped in a box over to Essos. And, and So uh, tell me, like one thing game. I think about a lot is how horrible it would be if you had been trapped in a box for a really long time to be released from that box and have Varys be the first person. <laughs> that would be bad. Don't you Although, think? interestingly, and, and again, I'll, not, I'll also return to differences from the books because, again, it, it comes into my 
curiosity about how they're managing this. In the books, Varys doesn't leave Westeros. He stays in King's Landing and continues to do his spiderly things. The fact that he has gone with Tyrion to Essos to exile and is the guy who is explaining now what he wants Tyrion to do means two things. A, they're using Varys as a replacement for more new characters mm-hmm. because George R. R. Martin has the bad habit of constantly adding new characters and the TV show has definitely put a curb on that. But it also makes Varys a much more open actor, and I mean that as like an actor in human affairs, than he has been. You now know what Varys wants. We never really have before. And he's being very overt about what he, how, what's he going to try to do to get it. And it's a little strange. It's not what we expect from that character. You never told me why you set me free. Your brother asked me to. Could have said no. <laughs> Refuse the Kingslayer a dangerous proposition. Not as dangerous as releasing me. You risked your life, your position, everything. Why? You're, you're not family. You owe me nothing. I didn't do it for you. I did it for the Seven Kingdoms. A drunken dwarf will never be the savior of the Seven Kingdoms. I don't believe in saviors. I believe men of talent have a part to play in the war to come. Whenever he or Littlefinger get to do one of their very dramatic monologues about power and the future of the realm... I kind of am a sucker for those. And so I liked that in this episode that we get the, you know, Tyrion pep talk, as Greta says, for why he needs to not just, you know, drink himself to death. He needs to go help Daenerys learn how to be queen and come back and take over. But the whole build up towards Tyrion saying, you know, who who should be king? I'm not going to be king. And he said, who said anything about a king? I love the little moments like that where you realize yeah. that there's this whole layer of political wonks, the... Toby Ziegler's and Josh Lyman's of the Game of Thrones world are my favorite characters in a lot of ways because they're not dealing with destiny and noble birth and all of these things, but they're actually the ones getting stuff done. I, I appreciate that. And, and it's weird because Varys actually, I, I'm, I'm assuming this was uh, intentional, he paraphrases Hemingway. He says, if you decide the world is worth fighting for, which is, I think, a paraphrase of the famous line from... Uh, uh, for whom the bell tolls, where it, it was a beautiful world and it was worth fighting for. That is such a, a, a non-cynical thing for Varys to say. And while I appreciate your, 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 your Josh Lyman lust, <laughs> that's not Game of Thrones. Game of right. Thrones is not a show in which people are overt about their motives, are, are, are what's the opposite of underhanded, overhanded, <laughs> in terms of their, you know, I mean, Varys is somebody who, and heretofore has been in the TV show, somebody who does things through subtlety, does things through deception. And him standing there giving a pep talk to Tyrion was, I guess, necessary for the plot, but a little odd for Varys. And I kind of, I kind of, I will say goodbye to, to Varys as we knew him, and, and I'll kind of miss him. Oh, I mean, it's a less violent death than we would expect, so you know that's yes, something. Yes, yes. Although I do, I think the single best character moment of the of the first episode was when Tyrion uh, gets out of the box, drinks a lot, vomits it up. Nice colored vomit, special effects guys. And then immediately reaches for another drink. That was great. Yeah, I mean, I love the, like, can I drink myself to death on the way to Marine? It's perfect. That was a funny line. <laughs> and, uh, and and also, and, and maybe the single best line of the episode also went to Varys, where, you know, he says, you have compassion. And Tyrion says, I, I shot my father and killed my lover. And Varys says, well, I didn't say you were perfect. <laughs> and, I loved that, and, too. And, and Conleith, I think I'm saying Conleith, Conleith Hill, who plays Varys, just delivered that line totally without any irony or a smirk, which would have killed it. And it was great. Also, like, doesn't it take acknowledging, like, the you have to feel bad about killing your dad and your lover in order to actually have compassion, right? Isn't that how that yeah, works? Yeah, I think he genuinely feels bad. We never. It's interesting, in, in the book, again, I will do this a lot, I apologize to everyone in advance. Stop apologizing uh, ter- now, please. 
All right. <laughs> Tyrion kills Shay in a slightly different way with a lot less remorse. Uh, basically in the book, and now, of course, in terms of the TV show, we're going back to last season, he, he just finds her in her father's, in his father's bed. He, she has been betrayed by her in the way depicted in the TV show, and he just strangles her. And in the TV show, they carefully choreographed the scene, so it seemed as if he had a credible claim of self-defense. She's grabbing for a knife or whatever it was she was doing. And that was tough, and that was interesting, because, you know, I think that the Tyrion of the TV show is somebody who clearly is everybody's favorite character. And I think they needed to pull back on his willingness to murder her in order for us to keep rooting for good old Tyrion. And give him his nose. There's that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that nose, man, every time. <laughs> he just shouldn't have it. In the books, no nose. Oh, yes. In the books, no nose. Are you guys offended by this? That in the books, Tyrion at this Greta point talks no about nose? it all the time. I talk about it a lot. I mean, I think it's one of those <laughs> things where, you know, I mean, TV, obviously, it's a visual medium. Like, we wouldn't want to look at a person without a nose. How dare time you? At a time, you know, but it's also like, it's one of those really convenient inaccuracies, I think, you know? So if we speed through a few of the other plot points that happen in season five, episode one, we have sort of a nice scene between Podrick and Brienne where... Again, a bit of a pep talk ha- happening because Brienne is a little aimless now. I don't want anyone following me. I'm not a leader. All I ever wanted was to fight for a lord I believed in. The good lords are dead and the rest are monsters. Arya clearly didn't want to go with her at the end of season four. Arya, by the way, we're not going to see in this premiere episode. One of the casualties of storytelling in an ensemble this big where the storylines are barely intersecting is that we went the whole first episode without seeing two of our main characters. We don't see Bran. We don't see Arya. The young Starks are probably going to appear, we would guess, in season two or in episode two. But we don't Can see them. Can I you back me up this? But I've, I have read that the actor who plays Bran, Bran, no, Bran, Bran is different. Bran, Bran, uh, has said <laughs> that he is not in this whole season because oh, basically right. they advanced his plot to the end of book five, the last book we have. So nobody knows what's happening with, with Bran. He has ended up beyond the wall with the children of the forest. And uh, that's as far as we know. So we're not going to see Bran anymore. As for Arya... She's headed um, to Bravos and will be learning to be even more terrifying he, and awesome, right? Exactly. But here's one of the things that there are two unspoken truths about Game of Thrones. And I'm going to say, well, I'm going to speak one of them now and I'll save one of them for my bottoms <laughs> in a minute. There you go. The first one is it's really not very good episodic television. Meaning that the show, the episodes don't really break down into good episodes with a beginning, middle, and end in this, in the way, say, Sopranos episodes did, or Breaking Bad, or, or Mad Men, or Choose Your Choose Your Poison. And the reason for that is, of course, as you said, too many characters, too many plot points. You have to. There's so many people to cover. You can't spare more than a minute or two with each character in order to, to sort of catch everybody up in the action. In the book, of course, you could spend, you know, a 30-page chapter finding out what's happening with, say, John at the Wall. In the TV show, you have four minutes. Go. Right. And then we got to get back to Red Landing, or excuse me, uh, the King's Landing and the Red Keep. And then we got to get over here. And we got to, of course, we got to check in with Daenerys. And so as episodes, they often don't hold together. The, the things we like about them tend to be season-long arcs or beginnings, middles, and ends. And this episode, I thought, was was very indicative. We had a lot to do. We, well, who, where's, where's this person? And where's that person? And what are they doing now? And, you know, the very name of the episode, uh, the, the Wars to Come, indicates we're just setting up a lot of things that are going to happen. We got to do this. 
Um, you got to know where everybody is and what they're trying to do next. And we're going to establish that and we're going to kill somebody off and then we're going to move on. Yes. <laughs> I did think it was pretty good setup, though. And perfect. You know, honestly, when it comes to Arya, I mean, she. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It's on a boat. Right. Like it, ta- yes. it probably takes a really long time to get to Bravos. Right. Like, I'm glad they didn't spend those four <laughs> minutes of Arya like putzing around on a boat. I feel like that would have been, you know, like I, she, yeah. I would like to watch Arya putzing around. <laughs> she would be so devious. I could do that. <laughs> well, give it wait till next week. We'll probably have it eventually. So we see Sansa and Littlefinger making fun of Robin, who can't sword fight. We see them heading off and her becoming more and more attuned to the world that she's now living in and getting a little more agency. I am excited for her, man. She's going to she's gonna mess some stuff up. And then we see uh, a lot of John and Stannis and Mance Raider. That's the other big thing happening in this yes. episode that d- d- takes us all before, the way to the end. Before we leave off Sansa, I just want to say that little Robin, probably if I had to do a sword fight, that's what I would say. <laughs> like, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Peter, just, I think just, you should give yourself more. Just a shout out. A shout out to the... To the dorks. <laughs> to the dorks. What did they say? He's 13. He He's should 13. be better at this by now. <laughs> yeah. But oh, they just God. threw his mom down the moon door. He's sad. Anyway. Ugh, I, yeah. I, yeah. I don't want to <laughs> talk about Robin. I did think another really interesting pep talk, though, back to that idea, was Dario yeah. talking to Daenerys. Like, well, he awesome. called her on it in a really yes. interesting way, I thought. And said something that I don't think anybody... Again, I read the book a couple of years ago, so I'm not quite sure, but I don't think anybody actually says to her so plainly and so accurately, which is the reason that people follow you, is you have dragons. A dragon queen so without dragons a, is no queen. Exactly. And that was a great line. I love what they've done with that character. By the way, I, I love, and readers of the book will know what I mean, that they did not go with the canonic hairstyle for Dario. That would have been bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny because in the books, I didn't really get it. I was like, that yeah. guy's probably not that hot. But they ca- again, with the casting, they did a good yes, job. Yes, they did it's a like, great oh. job. Or, or in that case, the recasting. Because yeah. I don't know if you know, remember this, but the first guy to play Dario was like straight out of a Ralph Lauren ad. It was he terrifying. Was. <laughs> yeah. He was bad. But the, he, I'm sure he's a fine person, but he just looked a little too pretty. But this guy's good. And the fact that he says that to her, I think, needed to be said uh, almost on behalf of we viewers. Because, you know... What makes her cool is her dragons. Otherwise, she's just this, you know, this somewhat naive teenager. Yeah, really. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) It's not anti-feminist to say Daenerys does not know what she's doing. She's a teenage girl. And she has (laughs) dragons. And that, the fact that the writers know enough to recognize that and to front load it and then to send her down into the dungeons and make that her challenge, how does she recover the dragons immediately and her power and influence ultimately is an interesting question for her. I'm I don't know. I, you know, I find the dragons kind of boring, honestly. Like in my notes, when, when there's that scene where she goes down to check in on the dragons. Who are pissed. I wrote, Daenerys goes to dragons, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I think this is interesting, though, because we see that she has teenage dragons, maybe. They're angsty. Yeah. 
They don't kill her. They could. So one has gone off. She doesn't know where the third is. The two that she's got caged up are really pissed when she comes to visit. Yeah. But they don't, you know, burn her or maul her or anything like that. They just express their displeasure with being locked up, which I think is completely fair, Um, you know, to advocate for dragon freedom. Yeah, no, it's fair. It's not cool to be a dragon and not get to go outside. I mean, if you think of them as her children, she has locked them up in a basement. Like, that's not cool to do to your kids. Let me ask you guys a question. I have gone on about how much I think the casting in the show is excellent. And I know that Amelia Clark, who plays Daenerys, has gotten tremendous plaudits and she started a Hollywood career. She's in the next Terminator movie. Awesome, great. I don't think she has done that well in sort of the latter part of Daenerys' career. She was great in the first season as this very innocent, uh, scared, tremulous young woman who becomes much stronger over the course of... the events. But since then, as the queen and mother of dragons, I don't think she has lived up to the image I had of that character from the book. Not that I know that anybody could. But I mean, I refer to the my very favorite scene from all of the books, which is when she takes the unsullied. And her big line is, that's because he's not a slave and all hell breaks loose. And I thought they staged that scene as well as they could, given the limits of you know actual physical production. But Amelia Clark, I don't know. When she reaches down and tries to get those bass notes of command, if you will, <laughs> I don't know if they're there. Well, I mean, I think even as a character, she has a lot to prove, right? I mean, her more than anyone else. Yeah, she's a teenage girl. She's got a lot of living up to do, I think, before. Like, she has the dragons. That's really it. Yeah. It does feel like she has as many opportunities to succeed as anyone in the show. And she's still sort of bumbling through, which is partly the writing as much as the performance. I think that we're finally starting to see these behind the scenes of what her struggle to understand how to be powerful is going to look like. The sort of bedroom scenes that we often see with political dramas where it's the man behind the queen or the woman behind the king. And so to have those kind of relationships build in her world will, I think, hopefully help round her out as a character. But I think you're right. Right now it's often... And then Daenerys stands in a blue dress and a lot of CGI happens around her. And I don't know how much of that is her fault (laughs) compared to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Arya and the Hound get so much great dialogue and so much humor to play with and so many other things that she mostly just gets to stand near CGI. Right. And 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 to be fair to Amelia Clark, I don't know that there is an actor alive at that age who could do what George R. R. Martin needs Daenerys to be in the course of of this saga to go from in the book a 13-year-old girl to a I guess ultimately 16-year-old empress it's tricky and it's it's uh, there's not an actor I don't know maybe alive who could do that whole range really really well I think you'd be good at it Peter thank you I have the tried blue on dress? the at home. The blue dress. <laughs> I don't think the nude scenes would be as exciting for people in the first episode, first season, but there you are. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. So what about Jon Snow and Mance Raider? That, to me, was sort of the crux of it all, I think. Yeah, that was the one place where this episode followed a story to completion, to put it mildly. Uh, Mance Raider captured in the great battle to end last season up at the Wall. Stannis isn't there, and the question is, what's going to happen to Mance Raider? He is offered a chance to lead his people under Stannis. He refuses to do it and bites it by being burned at the stake. Well, until John intervenes. And in the book, here we go again, <laughs> uh, we're told later that there's this sort of clever dodge, and they burn somebody else instead of Mance, so he's around. Oh, that's around. right. Yeah, so he's around able to help our heroes with their various plots and machinations. And I think that this version in which Mance, you know, follows his convictions to his sorry end is a better 
it's a better for the character. It's certainly truer to the character, and it's less of a cheat. You rarely feel that George R. R. Martin is ever cheating, and I thought this was one era he did. He likes Mance Raider and wanted to keep Mance Raider around. So, by the way, one of the things I hope to do later on with this podcast is recommend things that we know of that you can see these very good actors and other things. Mm-hmm. I'll anticipate that if we ever do it as a segment, and saying if you like uh, Kieran Hines, who plays Mance Raider, and you're sorry to see him go, as you should be, he's a great actor and it's a great character, watch, uh, among presumably many other things he's done, watch the first season of HBO's Rome, in which he plays Julius Caesar. Oh, wow. Uh, Spoiler, he also dies. (laughs) But he is so good in that. It's the first thing I ever saw him in. And he is amazingly good as Caesar, who in that version is a great character, really interesting and roundly written and he's superb in it first I ever heard of him and and that's why I was so excited when I found out he was playing Mance I think think the important things for Jon Snow in this episode too it's more powerful for Jon to have to pull back the bow and kill Mance as a moment of mercy killing and a moment of defiance for Stannis that sets up a new dynamic between Jon Snow and Stannis that obviously wasn't in the books in that way so now we see this exchange this fight between what I would say is the true leader of the North and then the person who's decided he's the king, Stannis, right. who right. hasn't doesn't actually have any leadership skills, just has an army and a strange witch woman. But so- well, that's, the, the, the conflict, I think, is not going to be between Jon Snow and Stannis, but between Jon Snow and Melisandre, which I think is what they're really setting up because Melisandre is the one who likes to burn people to stake. And th- that moment when they're in the, God, in the so weird. unrealistically quick elevator. I need <laughs> I to talk to them it. about this. It was so funny because even just now I was like, wait, was that actually an elevator? Like, Yeah, well, they've, they've yeah, had this since the beginning. So and it's silly. basically, it's like, yes, it's, it's medieval technology, but we happen to have an elevator that can go up 700 feet in about three minutes. <laughs> and um, Don't ask. Don't ask. <laughs> and, and that moment when Melisandre turns to him out of nowhere and says, are you a virgin? Yeah, you know, I would have given anything for Kit Harrington, the actor, to turn to her and just wag his eyebrows, you know, like, <laughs> or flip his no. hair a little. Oh, Something. Man, Who wants hurt. to know? Well, and there was so much goodness in that conversation between Mance and John. I do want to talk about that a little bit because I found that I think that was the best interaction of the of the episode. You spent your life convincing ninety clans to come together for the first time in history. Thens and Hornfoots. The Ice River clans, even the giants. A life's work uniting them. He didn't do it for power. He didn't do it for glory. He brought them together to save them because none of them have survived the winter, not if they're north of the wall. Isn't their survival more important than your pride? Pride? Fuck my pride. Honestly, like when when Mance says the freedom to make my own mistakes was all I wanted, I just thought that was incredible. And that's the kind of thing like if he had managed to survive the gravity of that interaction about pride, about dignity, about what it really means to lead and why you may or may not want to fight someone else's war. There was so much in there. It was great. And and again, I give all credit to the actors, especially Kieran Hines, who we shall miss. Thank you. I'm just saying you're right. <laughs> I know. That's I, why I, I'm I don't, you. See, see, a less sensitive man would feel the need to say you're right and then repeat all your points back at you, except <laughs> I get to say them. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say, Greta, you were correct. There was a lot to love in Season 5, Episode 1 of Game of Thrones, The Wars to Come. In just a minute, we're going to list our three least favorite moments of the show so far each Mine, uh, you're probably going to maybe agree with a couple. I think one might be debatable, but we're going to do that in just a minute. Stay with us.
This is Don Hall. And I'm Tyler Green. We are the hosts of WBEZ's arts podcast, General Admission. We talk to artists of all stripes, including cool cats like the legendary performance artist Holly Hughes, HBO's looking star Raul Castillo, and graphic novel illustrator Jill Thompson. We think the world needs an art podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously while also asking tough questions. That's not possible, you say? We think not. To decide for yourself, check us out at wbez.org slash general admission. You are listening to Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter Segel. Last week we talked about our top three sort of moments or maybe notions from the series as a whole. Today we're going to talk about our bottom three, our least favorites. Peter, you chose the word bottom. I like it. Yes. Our uh, Game of Thrones bottoms. Uh, I have three. The first is obvious. Everyone noticed it. The second was subtle. I think I'm the only person who made fun of it. And the third one is one of the great unspoken flaws of Game of Thrones that I'll, only I, so far, as far as I know, will have dared to utter out loud. <laughs> oh, good. I'm so, so excited. Th- th- so we all know that one of the criticisms, one of the widely mocked things about Game of Thrones, most especially the first season, was the sex position. And the problem was... They had all this exposition, and because it's a drama and not a narrative on a page, you have to have it happen through dialogue. So we had all those interminable conversations between characters about what had happened during the Roberts Rebellion and what had happened, blah, blah, blah. Many of those conversations happened while two people were having sex, right? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I'm a ward of, (laughs) you know, it's like, oh. But there was one that was utterly ridiculous. The problem for the writers is you have Littlefinger. Peter Baelish. And he doesn't have any friends, as Renly points out to him in one episode. So who's he going to talk to when he, he describes his deep, rich, and necessary-for-us-to-know backstory? Well, I know, since he has a bunch of brothels, why doesn't he have two prostitutes have sex with each other in the background while he talks to himself? <laughs> I don't Which see is... what the problem is with this. <laughs> it was, I, first of all, I defy anyone to remember a word he said while the two women were writhing in the background, as he's like, it was hilarious. He was like, he's like, well, of course, I was born a, a poor lordling on the fingers, and I was in love with Caitlin Stark, and I am the only one who looks out. And meanwhile, behind him, it's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, please. And so there's a lot was, of rack focusing, pun intended. There's a lot of rack, as they say, rack focus. Ha 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 ha. ha. I, don't, I don't get that joke, guys. It's the thing well, you, you do in film and cinematography when something's in the foreground and something's the in the background, and you change from having the thing the in the front be in focus oh, okay. to the thing in the back. The so, boobs in front to the boobs in back. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. That's my Perfect. pun. Yes. yes. Sorry. So that, that was the, the, the sex position was ridiculous, although I understand why they felt it was necessary, and that was the most ridiculous act of sex position. Number two, a very subtle and small thing. I thought it was hilarious. It was the episode, now we're in the second season, Renly has met uh, Stannis on the field, and uh, Renly is marching toward the Red Keep, King's Landing, with his army. Uh, Stannis is marching with his. This is preparatory to uh, Renly getting killed by the mysterious shadow baby. (laughs) And there's a moment where they're sort of confronting each other. They're there with their retinue on horseback. It's a nice scene by a beach. And Renly says, well, look at my banners. I've brought 40,000 men. And everybody sort of looks right and kind of nods. (laughs) And looks back at each other. And all I could think was, they just didn't have the budget to do like a CGI of a whole army, right? They just said, everybody look at it as if there's an army there and, and look concerned at the size of the army. Okay, now look back at each other. And I just thought that was hilarious. That's a, a minor point, though. I, I gotta know, say, no like one, of all the things. Of all the things. why It's just, it was very funny. And I liked <laughs> un- 
unintentional humor. <laughs> but the third thing is no one has, to my knowledge, ever pointed this out before, but I'm going to do it, which is Peter Dinklage's terrible fake British accent. Mm. You're going there. He, he, I'm going there. He's gotten better, but it's still bad. <laughs> it's not. I mean, it, it seems like every British actor can do a perfect American accent down to the appropriate zip code, right? But for some reason, American actors have a problem with this. And Peter Dinklage, as great as he is, I mean no disrespect to Peter Dinklage as an actor, but he cannot do this British accent. I mean, uh, the guy who plays Jamie Lannister, Nicholas Kostelwaldo, I think he's like Norwegian, and he has a better British accent than Tyrion Lannister. It's not good. I kind of think of that as like Americans in geography too, right? It's like we're just not as good at the rest of the world as knowing the rest of the world. Yeah. And it's so patently fake. He sounds like me saying, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's like, hello, governor. And it, it just, it, it kicks me out of the moment too often. I'm sorry. That's fair. You know, I realize that we have to start calling him other Peter now. Yeah. Peter, who shouldn't have a nose, we'll let you keep yours for now. Let's see how the rest of this goes. I very much appreciate it. Trisha, what about you? What are your bottom three? I think the most egregious moment so far was, and a lot of people apologize publicly as a part of the show for this, was in season four, episode three, the way the sex scene between Cersei and Jaime was portrayed at Joffrey's funeral ended up being a scene of rape which my understanding as the one in the room who hasn't read the books is that it's not how it's portrayed in the books as rape. And there was a whole internet kerfuffle about it, I think rightfully so, because I think as media makers, you tell the story you want to tell. There should be no censorship. There should be grappling with as much violence as the storyteller wants to put into their show in the show. But I think we have a responsibility to know if we're portraying rape just so that we can be prepared for the follow-up conversations if we're making stories and not just go, oh, sorry, I didn't realize that this was rape because I don't understand what consent looks like. That plays into such a larger narrative that's so problematic that I just felt like it was a missed opportunity for a show that has a tagline of all men must die. You know, clearly it has strong female characters. It has other things about it that it does well when it comes to portrayals of women, even in this genre that is typically very chauvinistic. But that scene, they just didn't get it right. And they didn't react to it well afterwards either. I, I don't want to get into the, the sexual politics of Game of Thrones yet. <laughs> but I want to ask you, uh, Trisha, what do you think they should have done that they didn't? Should they have shot the scene differently or written it differently so it was more obviously consensual? Should they have followed it up with a different scene than what they did? Should they have addressed it in some way with the characters? I think either it needed to be what it was and the reaction of the show creators needed to be, you're right. We just showed you rape. That is the thing that the story just did. Yeah. But the, oh, was that rape? Because someone just forced themselves on someone else and there was no consent. Was that rape? That was the problem for me. So they didn't so really, realize they were portraying rape. But they do it all the time in other times. It's cool. It was such an important moment for the story and those characters. And to not be aware of the fact that they had filmed a rape scene is problematic. So, so your criticism really isn't of the show per se. Like they showed us this bad thing and they didn't handle it right. Your criticism is of the, sort of the meta commentary by the show's creators. Yeah. If basically, I mean, if the creators had said in interviews or whatever or DVD commentary about that episode, yeah, you know, it's a rape because, you know, this is the world we live in and this is where Jamie was and, and Jamie wanted, wanted something. And in his world, if he wants something, even from his own sister, he can take it by force and he knows there's no consequence. So he went ahead and did it. Yeah. You would have been okay with that if they had just admitted that's what they showed. Absolutely. Because I think that the the problem is not portraying rape. It's understanding what consent looks like in the culture. Yeah. 
So you weren't annoyed by so much what you saw, just by the fact that the creators of the show didn't seem to understand what they had just done. Yeah, basically. (laughs) And then my other one, which we've talked about a little bit, and actually episode one of season five got at this a little bit. I was excited for Daenerys to grow more. I was with you, Peter. I think that the character's been too two-dimensional. There's been a lot of CGI and blue dress, but not a lot of character development there. And I want to see her be stronger or at least learn things and learn from people and that kind of thing. And instead of it just being this council of significantly older men telling her what to do and basically using her as a puppet because she's the one who the dragons won't burn to death, I want her to have a little more knowledge of how to become a leader. And it feels like with the fighting pits conversation that we see in this first episode, she may be learning. So that might be getting taken care of. And then my third is that, and I think Greta and I agree on this, the show is gorgeous, but sometimes for me, they spend too much time on the beauty of nature and people gently horseback riding through on their way from A to B. And this is always my beef with Ang Lee movies too. I'm a talky dialogue person. I like things where there's a lot of interaction and I just, there's so much story to get through. I don't want as many of these slow scenes, even if it is beautiful. I want more What's interesting is I've noticed in latter episodes and seasons, especially last season when we spent a lot of time with Oberyn Martell, there seemed to be, instead of sex position, garden position. (laughs) Garden's position in that you'd have these lengthy conversations, especially about Oberyn's backstory and why he came to Red Keep and what happened back in Robert's Rebellion and his sister and all that. Your grace. Prince Oberyn. Writing letters. A poem, actually. May I show you the gardens? I couldn't very well refuse a royal escort. No, you couldn't. I didn't realize you were a poet. Not a very good one. <laughs> For your paramour. For one of my daughters. You have several, don't you? Eight. Eight? Eight daughters. The fifth is difficult. I named her after my sister, Elia. Beautiful name. Yes. But I can't say it without turning sad. And after I turn sad, I grow angry. Perhaps that's why she's difficult. And they'd walk through these gardens. You did this in season three as well with Olena the Queen of Thorns, there's just a lot of garden machines. And it's almost as if, yeah, we have a lot of dialogue to get through, but look at this garden. <laughs> Isn't it nice? Here, we'll cut the shot so they're in a different part of the garden, even though they are apparently continuing the last <laughs> sentence. So just assume that they stopped speaking, went over to this even more attractive part of the garden, and started the conversation <laughs> over again. Because it's pretty. And I prefer that to sex position, really. I, it's easier for me to focus on the dialogue when it's just, you know, ferns in the background. But botanists, man, they just can't focus. Oh, it's so hard for the botanists. The guys. botanists are keeping tracks of, like, pistols and stamens. And yeah, exactly. And exactly. Yeah, Trisha, I think that kind of follows in with mine. And I really just have one big bottom moment. And again, it's more conceptual than actual specifics. But I find sometimes the show to be... It's like too epic. It's almost too cinematic. The buildup can be almost excruciating. And I think I have actually resolved it to a certain extent, honestly, with this whole taking notes thing, because it's requiring me to focus in a way that I just wasn't before. I don't think I was giving it the attention it deserved. And I think it was like I would put Game of Thrones on as like the show I can watch while I do other stuff. No, and that's it's just, just a like mistake. it's you can't do exactly. That. Yeah, it's not that show. And, you know, I think part of it, too, is like 
as you know, Trisha, I'm kind of a grandmother. I like to go to bed by nine o'clock, which means I need something happening in this show or else I just like get kind of sleepy, you know? (laughs) So is your complaint, Greta, that the show's scope is too epic, too many characters, too many places? Is it, I mean, do you wish that, you know, we lost half the characters and we're just able to focus on, say, Red Keep on one end and and Daenerys at the other, or, 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 or what exactly are you complaining about? What exactly am I complaining about? I think it's actually what you mentioned earlier, that idea that the show doesn't tell stories as episodes. You know, like the season all comes together really beautifully. And I think when I've really enjoyed Game of Thrones the most is when I binged on episodes too. You know, when I would save up on five or six and be able to really power through them, because then there was a greater sense of completion because so often you'll spend an hour with this show and you'll be like, wait, so what? Act- we just saw we were in, you know, even in this last episode, we were in what, like at least half a dozen different places. Some plot points progressed further than others. And it's just, you know, like, yes, someone died at the end of this one. So that's good. But otherwise, <laughs> like, there's not a whole lot to show for it, you know? Yeah. And, and in many ways, you know, moving the plot of the show forward is like moving all your pawns forward on a chessboard. You have right. to take one turn for each move. Exactly. Zip. And then hours over and you've managed to move every piece forward, but it took you eight turns and a lot of time to get the whole army of pieces forward a little bit. And sometimes that, particularly in the middle episodes of any season you might pick, that can be a little aggravating. Right. You spent a lot of time with a lot of characters and not much has happened. Exactly. And you're still stuck with Stannis. (laughs) Stannis Ugg. Stannis Ugg. I like Stannis. What what do you think? Stannis is the worst. I just feel like. (laughs) This is why I'm here, for these intellectual, subtle arguments. (laughs) I just, I mean, I understand his necessity in the storyline and everything. I just am so annoyed by his existence, you know? Like, just let Jon Snow lead, for God's sakes. Don't impose yourself upon these Northerners. They don't need you. They're fine. Well, the problem, interesting, I like Stannis. I feel somewhat sympathetic to him because he's not that smart, and yet he's very driven by a sense of what's right. But what's interesting about Stannis is, as you know, one of the things that the show is very interested in, and this comes from George R. R. Martin, is like whence comes power, right? There's that famous speech that got translated from the book to the show, which is, I believe it's about, you know, the the king is surrounded by a a priest and a soldier and, you know, there's a soldier who's got like a priest and a king and somebody else. And who is the soldier going to obey? And it's all arbitrary. And Stannis's claim is legitimate. He is the oldest surviving brother of the true king, who's not a bastard. And yet everybody hates him. Uh, <laughs> and he's driven forward by his own sense of rectitude and followed by people who, to whatever extent, share that sense of rectitude. He is saved by his aide-de-camp Seaworthy, who's a great character. Yeah, yes. And if it weren't for him, we'd have no sympathy for Stannis whatsoever. But the fact that Seaworthy, Davo Seaworthy, and that wonderful actor who plays him, whose name I don't have in front of me, is such a sympathetic and wonderful, hard-bitten, crusty guy that you're willing to go with Stannis just as long as Seaworthy is still there. Yeah, if we lose Seaworthy, I'm going to be on Team Stannis as the worst with Greta. But we'll have to see how that all plays out over Season 5. Thank you for listening as we... Yammer on about our favorite show that involves politics, dragons, and a running total of boobs and butts. We will keep you all updated episode to episode about that and everything else that happens this season on Game of Thrones. And we want you to join our conversation. You can ask us a question or suggest a topic for us to discuss on an upcoming episode of this podcast by calling and leaving us a voicemail. That number is 312-948-4867. You can also find us online at wbez.org slash nerd at recaps. We got this really adorable message, Peter, 
Colleen, our dear intern, will you please read this message so that Peter can hear it? I love this so much, so much. I want to drink wine with you guys and watch the show. Now, do the same thing for everything I love. No, seriously, do this for Orphan Black. I have gone to the extreme length of forcing my boyfriend to watch it simply so I have someone to talk to about it. And he's okay and all, but just incapable of extreme nerding out over this stuff. <laughs> I need nerding out. Do Orphan Black. So we have our first request for a follow-up. Right. Here I, we I go. I understand Orphan Black is very good. It is very good. <laughs> you should be watching it. And I liked that actress's uh, one-episode cameo so far. Uh, I'm not quite done with the series in Parks and Rec, so I'm all for it. <laughs> there you go. You so, can also talk to us at Nerd at Podcast on Twitter. You can find me at Twitter at, at Peter Sagel. This is a good one. This show is produced by us with help from our WBEZ cohort, especially Joe Dassault, head of WBEZ podcast, Colleen Pellisier, fabulous intern and reader of Internet Comments, <laughs> and Brad Helm. Our theme music was composed by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. Catch you next Monday, nerds. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.